Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Legend of Zelda audio experience. Here, we scale the narrative, rebuild the characters, extract the themes via hookshot, of course, and finally face down the calamitous behemoth that is Breath of the Wild. Savak! Mmm. Ooh. Mmm. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hi, I'm Brian, still. I haven't changed yet. Today's episode is Courage Need Not Be Remembered, a bonus episode where we celebrate the five-year anniversary of The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. But first, our spoiler warning for this episode. We will be talking about Breath of the Wild in full spoilers, though we may circle to other Zelda titles as well as Metal Gear because, you know, we are who we are. So assume our standard warning for that applies as well. Not sure how we'll do it, but we will. <laughs> oh, I, I, I have thoughts. <laughs> and joining us today to talk about Breath of the Wild is Mark Normandon, who had previously been on to talk about his top 100 Nintendo games back last summer. Uh, Mark, welcome. Hey, it's good to be back. It's nice to feel like an expert on something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What have you been up to uh, following your big Nintendo listing 101 ranking? What have you been kind of focusing on? <laughs> On your newsletter. Uh, Mostly not Nintendo games, just to shake things up a little. Uh, Although I did celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Nintendo 64 in the fall last year. So haven't escaped completely, you know? Yeah, well, you know, Nintendo has us by the balls. That's kind of of what they do. don't really have extensive notes like I usually do for our episodes, so we're just going to kind of wing it today. That said, I think everyone here loves Breath of the Wild. We all have it near our top games of all time, if not the actual holder of that spot, and my two pals here have both written at length about the game. Before we dive into some specifics, I guess I just want to know what you think of Breath of the Wild now, five years later, or what it means to you that Breath of the Wild is already five years old. I will hand this off first to our guest, Mark. Oh, jeez, come on. Uh, to me, Breath of the Wild is good. Um, yeah, it feels it feels older than five years uh, in some ways because I've played it three times already, at like a hundred hour clip each time. Uh, part of that was because I played it with my wife. We we both played together, uh, kind of just taking turns in in Hyrule. And the second time was so I could play it solo on the uh, the Master Quest mode. And then I played it again another time to write about it for the top 101. Um, and it still felt fresh and new every single time. So um, I guess it feels older than five years with the amount of time I put into it, but also still feels new, you know, which is kind of a wild thing. But that's why we're bothering to talk about it on a five-year anniversary podcast for a video game, which I imagine is not a thing everyone's doing all the time. 
No, probably not. That's interesting because I actually don't think you don't really do like five year anniversaries for like a, uh, this movie came out. But I feel like it's I don't know. I mean, breath. On one hand, I I can sympathize with people who maybe weren't that crazy about the game who got annoyed at every because like when um. Uh, what is that? What is that? The, the the PlayStation game that was very obviously copying it. Like when that came out, that was like, yeah, sure. But then you know, it, it did get to the point where like Pokemon came out and people were like, oh, they're doing Breath of the Wild. Okay, like it's maybe a little much. But at the same time, it is. I think one of the first things I said about it when I played it was that it felt like it was going to be one of those games that like really was kind of like a demarcating point, like like pre post Breath of the Wild, and it really does feel like that coming on. Like I. I'm going through cyberpunk finally and I'm getting annoyed that I, I have to find a way to get around it, that eight foot wall instead of just climbing it, which I could do. And it really any open world game that doesn't allow free climbing, I feel like is missing out now. It's been long enough. It should be in. Well, it's, it's funny, you know, um, you know, uh, horizon zero dawn came out a week before breath of the wild. You know what else came out that week? Near Tom, did. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so zero dawn came out, you know, a week before breath of the wild and, it felt a lot of ways kind of like the peak of the old open world style, except you didn't know it was the old open world style until Breath of the Wild released a week later, essentially. Um, and you've had some games try to incorporate some of the, you know, like the free roaming, uh, free climbing uh, stuff. Uh, you know, uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey really like took took that kind of an overdrive in a real Breath of the Wild direction, but it's still an Ubisoft open world game. So it's still extremely limited by uh, like the baggage of the genre in a way that Breath of the Wild isn't. Uh, so I agree with you that it's very much a like a kind of a demarcating game. And it's it's one of those ones where, you know, we're just five years on now and the development cycle time is so long that we haven't really seen the influence of that game yet. Yeah. You know, people can say like Pokemon Legends is like Breath of the Wild, but what they just mean is it's open world and Nintendo made it. Um, what they really just mean is that there's um, tufts of grass yeah, in it. Yeah, it's colorful. <laughs> there are colors. Um, I don't think we'll really see the full influence of this game. You know, 20 years from now, we'll look back and be like for the or for the 25th anniversary and just be like, wow, that really changed everything in the way people talk about you know, other Zelda games had changed everything. I Yeah, I suppose that's right, because thinking back, like, development times used to be so much faster. You could look in the year, let's just say, early, mid-2000, and then look back at Half-Life 1 and be like, yeah, that changed, like, shooters are all like this now. But yeah, you can't really do that now. It's it's a really, uh, for reasons that aren't entirely, you know, there's other reasons why development cycles are so long right now. But yeah, that's that's interesting, I suppose. No one else to frame it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think the the game you were referring to earlier, Brian, that was on, I think, Immortals Phoenix Rising. No, not one. Immortals. I know the name of it. I had it. Oh, okay. I feel stupid now. I should have looked it up. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, to be honest, I think it feels a lot like what the original Metal Gear Solid was for like military action games. Like, Genshin Impact. Um, Sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go for it. You know, yeah, Genshin yeah, yeah. Impact. That's what it was. I, had to, I knew it was a G game. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, but like the original Metal Gear Solid, basically every, what's it called? Anything related to any kind of like masculine, you know, gun shooting game kind of changed out of Metal Gear, whether it was mm -hmm. modeling your protagonist after Solid Snake or um, your attention to detail re regarding military equipment. 
Um, and then Zelda obviously felt like that. Um, it's actually interesting that you brought up a Horizon Zero Dawn um, because I actually played Breath of the Wild first. I'm like, I shouldn't get Horizon Zero Dawn because I know I'm going to spend 200 hours with Zelda. Um, so I beat Breath of the Wild and then I went back to play Horizon Zero Dawn and I kind of bounced off of it. I spent like 30 to 40 hours with it, but I actually didn't finish it just because it did feel a little bit of that sameness of the open world games that existed before Breath of the Wild. Um, I know you're a huge Assassin's Creed fan, but it definitely reminded me a little bit of that, at least like the first three numbered entries of the Assassin's Creed series. Mm. And it was also like the open world didn't really function like other open worlds did, where it's a bunch of things on maps that you go to as you opposed to- You don't get to, to vomit, yeah. Yeah, you, you you look at the world in front of you and that like makes the map more legible in a way. It's almost like a reverse flow of how you navigate the world. Or at least a, that's how I felt about it. I may bring this up again later, talking about some other stuff, but there was a, uh, this came out before Breath of the Wild, his video. It was a Mark Brown video back when he was becoming like big, where he perfectly had a perfect phrase. That's that's his, his big talent. He's able to phrase concepts we all understand very easily. And he was talking about The Witcher and just how annoying it is that, that so many big open world games have little dotted lines going everywhere. Like, <clears throat> as soon as you accept a quest, it has to give you a, a waypoint to go exactly where it is. And how refreshing it is to get... Because this came around, I think, like, Deus Ex Mankind Divided was a game where you could use real street directions because it was so small and, like, compact. It was a small little, like, maybe, like, three square miles of Prague. And so you could be like, I'm going to this, you know, go to this street and the fourth building on the right or whatever. And that was fun. Breath of the Wild took that farther where like, you really could. There's there's a, there's a side quest where there, I, I remember specifically where there's a, two guys were talking about where a chest was and they use exact directions of where it was and you could just go there and get it. And that's really satisfying to me. Per, like I, I really, it's much more, being able to have full control over, because you could put waypoints down, but it was always ones you would put down as the player. And I feel like that's just a lot more, it's a lot more agency in that. There's a lot more, it makes you sort of look at, just look at the world and just go places. There's not like a checklist of quests to do. There's not like a, a, you know, there's the one quest. That's really it. And then you can just kind of go wherever you want. And that's really, uh, it really engages that like wanderlust. I think we all have with games like this. And it really, I just felt like it was a lot more natural and organic way to, to go about pathfinding in the game i'd say the only uh like compare like fully comparable uh experience with an open world type game um is probably yakuza just the various yakuza games because that has a world where like yeah it, it will say hey you should go in this general direction and there'll be a dot flashing on your map if you look at it yeah um but you have to set the waypoints yourself it very much encourages you to find your own past and discover every little thing that is happening in the world. It is not really, uh, it's not really a setup where you, when you look at your map, it's just full of icons and things that are yeah. flashing at you to do. Like, yeah, it'll say, oh, here's a restaurant and here's stuff like that. But, you know, it is, but it's all like, here's a place you haven't eaten at yet. You know, here's, here's an experience you'll have. Yeah. Yeah. I can say that for sure. Cause I definitely, I was playing through, I'm still in doing, going through five now, but I, I kind of blew through three. Cause I was just sort of, I was going through a lot of them at the time and I mostly just did the story straight through mm. and did not enjoy it very much. And it's not work for those games. Like you, you really need to just, even if your objective in that game, in a Yakuza game is like three blocks away, you could just like 
even on that way, you could get sidetracked by a hundred different things. Mm-hmm. It's great. Yeah, I let myself get lost in in uh, Okinawa, right? In three, and uh, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it uh, for that reason because it was kind of just like, yeah, yeah, I have to go beat up this rival over there. But like, first, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna check this out. I'm gonna help this person. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna eat that. I'm gonna check, you know. Um, Although those games have their own. Uh sort of weird way you can get around like you can use real directions because it's mm-hmm. the same map for uh so like someone could be like oh he's on the south end of pink street and i could just go there by this point because i know where that is yeah. that's interesting having played five of them six of them in you know like 14 months <laughs> it was interesting you guys brought up waypoints because we're going to talk about like inventory management and all that stuff but even the waypoints you had like what four or six that you could lay down in total um, so even in terms of marking stuff on the map, you have to like, you know, if you're like, have already six markers, sounds like, well, do I need, do, do I want to, you know, give up one of them to mark this other thing that I see on the map? Or am I going to actually, you know, change and go knock one of these guys out? So, um, it's, you know, kind of interesting how the game is designed in full. Um, I really like the idea that you were mentioning earlier, how it's not just like a log of stuff you have to go do. Um, it, a lot of times, you know, being a, you know, veteran video gamer, you uh, you understand the conceit of video games and you're okay with the seam showing of like clearly this exists to, because it's a game. Um, but you just see it a lot less with Zelda. Like like the game allows itself to kind of explain itself and unfold to you um, mm-hmm. where it doesn't really have to hold your hand in a way that most other games like it do. Well, playing Cyberpunk right now, I can say that that, that checklist thing is a huge problem with that game. It really dilutes the good content that is there when it's like, it gives equal weight to uh, hey go do this important story mission with like good writing or hey you can buy a car. It's like I don't I don't want to pay sixty thousand euro dollars to buy this car that I'm not going to use. Please take it off of my map. No, you can't. It's impossible. It's 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 a it's just a hugely different way of designing. I mean, again, it feels like a more Nintendo way. Like why would we need these? We don't need these. They can go. They they love to cut. They live to cut fat off of their own games. Uh, so also, uh, do you guys remember where you guys were? Um, I'll throw it to you in a second, but I definitely remember my uh, experience first with Breath of the Wild because um, it was actually the day after the cinematic debut of the movie Logan in 2017. So I remember I went to go see that movie Thursday night, as I do with many Marvel movies, and I took the following Friday and Monday off because Friday the Switch and Breath of the Wild were arriving at home. Um, I actually had to write a review of Logan for a website called Screenfellows, which me and Brian both wrote for. Um, actually, Brian's uh, Breath of the Wild review is on that website. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got up that Friday morning, um, I wrote like 3,000 words about Logan, which ruled because I loved that movie. Um, and then my Switch arrived and I was just, you know, gone for the next like 50 or so hours. It's been a while also since I've really like taken time off of work and cleared my schedule for a video game. It's usually just kind of like business as normal, you know, like you get home, you watch a movie or watch your shows or whatever. It's like, oh yeah, I got a new game. I'll play it mostly over the first weekend I get it but this was kind of one of those things like get the fuck out of my calendar I am going to devote this entire next four days to this game I'm not ashamed to say that I did that for Halo Infinite so but also because I had to get a tooth pulled the day before so I had two days off of work consecutively so you know do you think I didn't do that for Metal Gear Solid 5 The Phantom Pain or hell Metal Gear Solid 5 Ground Zeroes or I guess Metal Gear Solid 4 comes to the Patriots, Metal Gear Solid. <sighs> Anyways, Mark. <laughs> oh, we had pre-ordered a Switch and Breath of the Wild as well. 
It's funny. I don't think I I don't think I really watched any trailers or read anything about the game before getting it. I was just like, yeah, it's fine. I trust you. Uh, like it's Zelda, you know. Um, I heard that it was different than Skyward Sword, and I was like, good, because good. Uh, yeah, I, I like not to not to not to completely impugn Skyward Sword. No, I, I like it needed the, the formula needed change. Yeah, I like Skyward Sword enough, but it was clearly like, okay, you guys are done with this direction. Like that's over now. Yeah. So when they said, yeah, it was when be they more when open, they the yeah. when the third act of that game is going back through the all the maps and just collecting stuff, I was like, all right, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I have a lot of respect for Cyrus Sword, but yeah, it just felt like about thirty percent too much game, which is a shame because it's not even that long or difficult. Yeah, but it does have some good dungeons. I, I do think that's if we talk about what the sequel needs, it it needs dungeons. It needs real dungeons. I feel like that would improve. That's the one criticism people had for the game that I really actually agreed with. Like the weapon degradation stuff, I actually don't have a problem with, but we'll talk about that. I had a very funny, I was living at the time, I'd only lived for a few months at that point, was uh, renting basically a a converted duplex from my best friend from high school and living with him and his family for a while. And I worked and still work at a uh, grocery store, like a big, like a box store. And um, so he... (laughs) People have been talking about in the uh, the uh, old shout out day one DLC podcast I used to do. Uh, friend of the podcast Matt Watts kept complaining that his um, his pre order had been, uh, he's used to be mode seven on Twitter. He um, he was complaining because his pre order had been like delayed by Amazon like six times for the Switch because that was we all remember that it was a really difficult to get one. So I just resigned that I wasn't going to get it. I was like I'm not going to play Breath of the Wild for a few months. I feel like. And then, uh, like three days before then, my roommate was like, Oh, hey, I forgot to pre order one. And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> but uh, so he just told me, like, Hey, you should check work and see if you guys have one there. And I was like, This is not an electronics store. Like, we don't get a lot of electronics. I'll ask, I guess. And I walked over at 8 45 at night, the night the, on March 2nd, asked the guy there if we had him. He's like, Oh, yeah, we got like 10 of them in. And there was nobody there. So I just clocked out at 10 30, sat in line for an hour and a half, bought a switch, came home, had a digital, had a, the, Digital code Breath of the Wild ready to go, and got to play it before anyone else I knew. <laughs> so I went from, oh, I'm not going to play this game for six months to I put 20 hours into it within like less than a day. I loved it. Well, the funniest thing about that too is the biggest reason I wanted to plow through it is because well, I, I got to beat this before Mass Effect Andromeda comes out later this month, <laughs> which is in retrospect one of the funniest things I've ever thought to myself. I mean, I like Andromeda yeah, no. enough, but yeah, when you're talking, it's like, okay, the most disappointing Mass Effect game. It's just game dull. It's just not, it's like... Breath of the Wild. I, Literally yeah. Breath of the Wild. Let's talk a little bit about how this game looks, plays, its mechanics, its systems, etc. There's a lot to talk about, and I want to hold off talking about the most contentious, weapon deprecation, until the end, because I hope it will allow us to transition over to the story from there. 
But I guess first, let's just talk a little bit about how this game looks, its aesthetic. Um, you guys have already kind of alluded to it earlier, and you mentioned it in both of your pieces, that it kind of has a Studio Ghibli look. It's a little softer on the detailed textures, but has kind of more of a surrealist or mosaic feeling. Impressionist, maybe, might be the term. Um, how does the game look to you guys? You know, it feels like kind of a halfway point between some of what they were doing in the past with... Uh... Skyward Sword and Twilight Princess, you know, they didn't want it to be quite as uh, bloom lighting, realistic looking as uh, as Twilight Princess, but maybe a little less dreamlike than a lot of what uh, Skyward Sword had going on. Uh, so it's a good it's a good balance. You know, they managed to create very much their own kind of style while like uh, like you had mentioned, you know, evoking uh, kind of a Studio Ghibli vibe. Um Although I think a lot of that is more the on the audio side, but it all it all works together hmm. so well that you know it's it still it still works from a from just the visual side of things. It wouldn't be me if I didn't mention. I also think um, obviously, I mean, because it's a Japanese development studio, you can say this. Uh, somebody there is a big Fumito Ueda fan because there's a lot of Team Eco stuff in there. Just like mostly mostly Eco, honestly, but Shadow of the Colossus too, like. Good amount of just like dilapidated ruins and quiet, like wind rustling through meadows and just like silence, which I think is really with the soundtrack, I think really gives it like a very unique just presentation, mm-hmm. really. Cause it, it's post, we're so, especially in the West, we're so used to post apocalyptic stuff being like loud and desolate more, more. It's not desolate, it's, it's just still. And, and like, you know, it's obviously doesn't have the, uh, the, the, three shades of brown and gray that every American post-apocalyptic game has that we all love, we love doing. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, it reminds me a little bit about how over on our Lord of the Rings podcast, I think Emily or, or one of our guests Emmett mentioned is like, you're going through this world and it's beautiful, but it's also like a broken world. Like it, it was beautiful and you're kind of seeing the remnants of that. Um, and you're seeing like, you know, when the elves used to live in Middle Earth and there used to be these, you know, bustling metropolises, that's the wrong word for it. But, um, you know, they had it was a much prettier world than when we see it in the third age of the Lord of the Rings. We see it with the elves having gone west for the most part. Um, a lot of, you know, Middle Earth place empty um, or bare or just like, you know, the lands just uh, west of the Misty Mountains, which used to be a thriving elfish uh, population is now completely empty. And that's kind of how you get walking through Breath of the Wild is like, yeah, it's gorgeous. But as you say, with all the ruins and like how things are a little bit post-apocalyptic, but not dull, um, it just reminds you that this was even more beautiful at some point. Um, I think we're led to believe a hundred and even a thousand years prior to the events of this story. Well, by the, by the lands west of uh, the Rocky Missing Mountains, you of course mean the, the, the lands of Beleriand, the ancient, of course. The ancient we all, from the we first all, age. We all know Beleriand. <laughs> it's we'll all learn a lot more about it soon enough, I'm sure. Unfortunately. Um, yeah. Y- you guys might. Anyways. Um, two, two people who are definitely going to be big fans of the Amazon show. It looks, it looks, cause it looks so good. We all agree. <laughs> Yeah, um, you can uh, hop over to my brother, my captain, my podcast, where me and more so Emily just absolutely eviscerate <laughs> the, the latest Lord of the Rings brings a power trailer. So that was a lot of fun. But what we're not eviscerating is this game, <laughs> I don't think. Um, and I want to kind of start talking about the systems. It's not so much the systems themselves that are interesting, but how simple they are all are, yet how they interact is like 
kind of bonkers and that it all makes sense, but it also can lead to just absurd outcomes like you flying across the map or, um, you know, getting electrocuted in the middle of a thunderstorm while trying to kill a dude. Um, it's really crazy how it works. So um, just to kind of recap some of the systems and then we'll talk about them is mm-hmm. um, there's some basic elemental attributes to both the world and the weapons and items you get like ice, fire, electricity. Um, things are made out of material, wood, metal, you know, meat, vegetation, and how they interact with ice, fire, and electricity all interplays. And then there's a whole system of what they call runes in the game, which are just essentially special abilities um, that Link has as he navigates the world. Um, The ability to create bombs, ice platforms, or use a magnet or stasis, which will freeze things in motion, allows you to hit it multiple times and build up momentum. Uh, so those are some of the systems. Also there's cooking, there's weather, a day night cycle, but I think it's just, I think it's the way the systems interact that really make this game. Um, I'm going to hand it over cause I'm kind of stumbling on my words here. There's, there's uh, a very specific, yeah, this is the immersive sim stuff. Cause that's what immersive sims do. That's the point is, is the interplay of systems. That's the sim part of it is, is systems interplaying in a more reasonable facsimile of like actual reality than usual in a game the best way you can especially for this game it's the because it's the one people were so blown away by myself included how you can basically use real world logic and not video game logic like uh i'm sure plenty of people did this i know i did in the which divine beast is and this is a problem because all the divine beasts look so similar there's an electric it's it's in um yeah it's in uh the the gerudo one um Nabors, yes. You can um you can solve one of the electric puzzles by just linking a bunch of metal weapons together and so they carry the charge over, which is you know, it's real world logic. That's a thing that it's it's a nonlinear way to like pass a test, but the game does not punish you for it. The game just accepts it. And that's you know, that's the that's stacking limb mines and Deus Ex to climb up walls and bypass parts of the level. That's it's it's uh anything in dishonored, basically. <laughs> It's, you know, it's using the systems as they're intended to be. They're not just a checklist of things that happen in the game and don't ever overlap in any way. It's it's the game. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I would trap. You can trick you can trap Lionels by lighting fires and they like they, sometimes they won't run through, at least on the normal version. And you can get above them with like the updraft from the fires. You can throw metal weapons at people during rain, thunderstorms. So they'll get they'll pick it up and get hit by it. I did that all the time. Especially to the the tougher bokoblins, you know, it's it's just stuff. It's not. I think people. This is why I like the we- the weapon degradation because it, it. If you have any creativity in the way you play video games, you can just have fun, hawking bombs at people and using kicking them off of cliffs, and you don't have to just run up and hit everyone with a sword over and over again. Like, it's it's you can it's the game adapts to how you, which is an immersive hate trademark. The game adapts to how creative you want to be with it. Because you can play prey just shooting everyone with a shotgun, or you can set up traps and hack stuff and have more fun. But it's it's really up to you how far you want to go with that. And and the fact that somebody did that with a Zelda game, maybe the most I, I would I would I don't think I'm insulting the game series. Maybe the most formulaic game series that exists, and put it into this incredibly expansive and just wonderful to experience open world. It's incredible. It's incredible that they managed to do that. I find it fascinating that so you talked about the uh, how things you, there are different options for for combat, but um, 
I think of some of the puzzles that require, you know, they, they seemingly require you to use the gyroscopic motion controls, mm-hmm. but you can solve them without doing that. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to grab the ball that is in the puzzle because it's metal, <laughs> you know, yep. or you're like, I'm going to hit the puzzle. I'm going to hit the, the surface of this puzzle with such force that it flips the ball without ever entering or I'm gonna, into it. The ones you can control the angle of, you could just flip it over and have it completely, uh, have the, the ball fall down on the blank side and just roll it in normally. I did that a few times. Well, like I was playing, uh, I was playing in handheld mode, but I was using the uh, Hori Split Pad Pro for the controllers instead of the Joy-Cons. And that doesn't have mm-hmm. the gyroscopic stuff. So I was like, I can try to figure this out in a way without the motion controls, or I can stand up and switch to Joy-Cons. And since the latter involves standing up, <laughs> I figured out how to do it without any motion controls whatsoever. And, you know, there's the, there's one of the, the shrine puzzles where you're supposed to, you're supposed to pick up a ball and move it across these moving platforms. And you're, you know, there's fire being shot at you and, uh, or wind, blow, you know, something that's supposed to keep you from making it across. But if you get the angle just right and hit, hit the ball just right with the, with the, uh, is it the kinesis? No, whatever. Stasis, that's, yeah. That stores up stasis, the energy. Right? Whichever stores up the yeah. energy. In it. So you just fill the ball with enough energy that it will fly across the whole gap. And then you just have to figure out without holding the ball how to cross without being blown off by the, the wind or whatever. I, I love that none of that's wrong. You know, it's just like, oh, here's another way to do it. And, the, you know, the shrines are meant to be a test for you and also for, for Link to prove that you are both capable of taking on uh, Ganon. So it doesn't really mm-hmm. matter how you solve them. So long as you've solved them, then you've shown yourself to be clever and ingenious and crafty enough to, that's, I mean, to continue yeah, through the game. The original Deus Ex is famous for you can just shoot, I would say, almost every character in that game. You could just kill them and the game, just the plot just continues on like, all right, well, that guy's dead. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the, the best way I could describe the difference between this is what I've used before. So the 2014 Thief, which was not a very good game, um, there is so there's a thing in Thief. There's there's wood arrows, which are just you, you can shoot the rope arrows. You can shoot them into any. You can shoot in the original games. You can shoot them into any wooden surface, and you have a nice rope hanging down. You know, you can shoot them into a wall right next to you if you want. Um, and so you could you could like have fun like you could shoot them and have the rope hang down and it would distract guards. You can there's not a whole lot you could do, but it's still like a nice, you know. It's you could experiment with it. In the 2014 thief, you can shoot rope arrows into only into specific spots and in the levels that have the rope arrow symbol above them, and that's it. That's the difference. And like, I feel like so many people don't. I don't want to call out the God of War because I liked it. I thought it was a good game. I thought it was a good story. But I, I kept getting maybe this is what post Breath of the Wild stuff. You can it's the Uncharted thing. You can only climb in those games in the specific climbing spot, and everywhere else Thanos just or Thanos uh, Kratos just like jumps into it <laughs> impotently, and it's like it's just it breaks the immersion for me. It, it feels like I'm not actually doing. I can't do what I want as this all powerful godlike figure because he can't climb a three foot thing in front of him because he hasn't been programmed in and it's it's just i know that the suspension of disbelief is a big thing for games but like at a certain point it's just more fun to be able to mess around with this stuff that's what i want out of games that's why i'm a hitman guy 
you talk about um, the prescribed climbing path. Um, that's kind of what I was talking about earlier when I was talking about like, we have to, you know, give up certain conceits because we know it's a game. Mm. And that's part of the reason I bounced off Horizon Zero Dawn is because the climbing is all those little yellow ledges and you have to follow the yellow ledges. It's the prescribed path for you. It's not like you feel like you have the freedom to really navigate the world in a certain way. Um, and I like, you know, you mentioned you like the weapon deprecation because that means you have to be smart with your inventory and actually fuck with your enemies more, which actually reminds me a lot of Metal Gear Solid 3, um, the most survivalist of the solid titles where um, you want to keep those bullets and that suppressor status, you know, for the big battles. So, you know, you're taking care of guards by throwing snakes at them or rotten food or stuff like that. Um, and it's fun to see all the different ways that the environment, the enemies and you, the player can actually interact. Um, Cause there's a ton that's, it's not, never really spelled out for you, but you can pretty much just do yeah, whatever I mean, you want. Yeah. This is one of the big reasons, the big things about metal gear that I think makes it stand out from Splinter Cell or it would kind of strike whatever other, all your, you know, all the things that you had first glance, you could think it was similar to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you were t talking about all the crazy things you do, uh, you know, people talk about fighting Lionels and how hard they are. And, um, even when you have to kind of do one as part of the Zora's domain story, um, they tell you, oh, you can't really fight him because you're not strong enough yet, depending on what order you do it in. But it's like, just take a picture of him is what you need to do and steal some lightning arrows. Uh, but, uh, earlier today on Twitter, I saw someone, you know, with three hearts of life, uh, go up to a Lionel and using the stasis with a rock just hits him in the head with an arrow that stuns the Lionel. And then they pick up the rock with the, or it was like something metal and they pick it up with the magnet and just boop the, uh, fucking Lionel on the head repeatedly. Um, and then when it's unstunned, hits him with one arrow again and then boops them with the metal block again over and over until it died. Um, you know, it just. Literally everything is possible. There's literally a way that you can pretty much accomplish anything, which um, it's really hard to think of how you design a game like that. That's so perfect. Like even at the margins, everything either works exactly as you'd want it to, or it's so bonkers and you're riding a log halfway across the map um, that it's super fun. It's I just, mean, you're still seeing, I don't know if you guys watch Highlight Reel, you still see Breath of the Wild stuff now. Every few weeks, people are still finding weird exploits and having things happen. And the game still continues. I mean, it doesn't like it when you're flying above the whole map in a minecart. The game does not like it, but it doesn't crash. And I think that's an impressive, <laughs> just like technically, that's an impressive feat. Yeah, I think the to tie into what uh, uh, Manu was saying, the I think the the central the central design piece for this whole thing is is the cooking essentially, because it is what opens up the game to you, any part of the game to you at any time. You know, you can get anywhere in the world and survive there if you cook the right stuff. Uh, so if you can get the ingredients and you can make yourself a potion or a meal or whatever, then yeah, you can go fight the Lionel with, you know, normally you have three hearts, but it's like, hey, you just made something that will make you, give you 10 extra hearts. Now maybe you can go fight him or it'll give you extra strength or defense or speed or uh, anything like that. Or you can go into environments, you harsh environments you couldn't be able to go to. Yeah. Uh, it, it's wild that uh, other than the very beginning on that plateau, like after that, it's just like, okay, nothing is close off to you. You like, there is a way you can go and survive anywhere. You just have to figure it out. So like, have fun, go experiment, experiment in the kitchen, experiment by looking through these things, find some items. Like, the world is literally your plaything. Do do what I did, make a, a 
honestly disturbing amount of uh, dubious food for the first few hours before you understood <laughs> what the cooking rules were. Yeah, no, uh, that great plateau section is definitely this game's tutorial. And we think of the four shrines there where you uh, get those runes. But to reach one of those shrines is actually a cooking puzzle. You have to like, or you don't have to, but the best way to do it is to get the hot peppers and eat it so you can navigate to the colder region on the great plateau. Um, And I think that's kind of a overlooked part of the tutorial of this game as such as it is a tutorial um, is that they introduce you to the cooking aspect as being you can basically do what you want as long as you know what to do and what to cook with and I thought that's again another just great bit of game design that might get overlooked a little bit mm-hmm. it's also great because it brings back uh, the importance of potions in Zelda not just like health potions but just like weird potions that was a thing that's been that had been gone for a while really yeah, no, for sure. I, re- I remember uh, the blue and red It's not big in the, in the 3D Zeldas. It's not a huge facet of them until now. So we were talking about the world, so we might as well just start talking about the overworld map, which at the point of its release and probably for a long time after, maybe just up until now, it was considered the greatest or greatest in terms of largest open world uh, map that there was. Um, not just in terms of size, but in terms of stuff to do um and again stuff to do not in terms of what's marked on your map on the pause screen but just the world was literally littered with you know korok siege shrines um cities towns stables enemies ruins yada yada someone else start talking please (laughs) (laughs) sorry i was just thinking about the do you know what happens if you collect every korok seed i've seen the video i haven't done it there's like 900 something of them yeah, um, you, they give you a little a little gold trophy that looks like a piece of poop. You know, that's because well, they are. Yeah, but it doesn't but like, it doesn't do anything for you. That's what's that's what's really great about it is it's just like, well, but, good but, job. believe me, people, you got it. There are people sharing Reddit screenshots of it. Yeah, no, thanks. Like, 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 um, I do like that the Korok system, though, because they make sure to give you as many as you want to get. Yes. Like, I think I had like 18 spots in my, for weapons. And I was like, that's probably enough. Like, I think I'm good. I don't, if I see one, you know, I'll grab it, but I'm not going out of my way to look for them. But, but knowing as, as Nintendo knows better than anybody, that the freaks are going to do it anyways. <laughs> like, they will do all of it. So you might as well give them a trinket so they can pretend that it was worth, that their time was worth it. It's really the beauty of the system is you only need what? A hundred something, 150 maybe total. Like, yeah, I was about to say. I think theoretically, you don't need any. Well, yeah. But yeah, I think most but, people, yeah. most people would. You kind of like you feel comfortable about that space wherever you're going to put them in, yeah. whether it's your shields or your uh, bows or swords or whatever. But like, there are 900 of them, so that you essentially, if you are looking even a little bit for them, you will get the ones you need. Yeah, you, yep. you don't have to put in too much effort. It's not going to be because man, there are games where it's like upgrades are tied to hidden things like that, and you. It, fe- it feels like a grind. It's like I am playing an open world action game and you have made it feel like the worst kind of grind from the worst kind of JRPG. And I say that as somebody yeah. who loves Japanese art- role playing games. Uh, but this avoided all that by just being like, you need 150 of them. We will give you seven times that many. And like, yeah, because now I'm thinking of. It's it's one of, that's one of the reasons I generally defend a lot of the Final Fantasy games that are accused of being too linear. It's like I don't I don't want to like. Do you really want to go do? I mean, I know people have done it, but do, do you really? I mean, my my friend that I live with did it, got his 
Tidus up to nine nine nine, like you know, infinite spear grid, so he could just have everyone's ability. And it's like that's fun to do, I guess, to do it. But like, what point are you gonna finish the game? <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm not doing this so I can one shot bosses. I just want to like play the game because I like it. I don't need. It's weird that that this game became that for me. But like, I did. I really enjoy that it lets you it really is up to you when you feel like you're strong enough to defeat Ganon. Uh-huh. And boy did I. I whooped his ass. <laughs> and I, yeah. I love that. I love that they don't force you to do it right after you do all the four the four divine beasts, because I definitely wouldn't have been ready then. But at, at that point I think I had like seventy or eighty shrines done. I had a bunch of weapons. I had all four, you know, I had the the, the having the four divine beasts done makes mm-hmm. it almost too easy, but Well yeah, there there were complaints that Ganon was too easy if you did everything. And it's like, you did everything. Your reward for doing everything yeah. is that Ganon was too easy. It's if you, if you want to be challenged by him, don't do the Divine Beasts. Don't go to all the shrines, you know, like. I could have done without the have, having his health, although I appreciated it at the time. Because I actually feel like it overshadows the fact that he does so many of the attacks that the Blight Ganons do that you've. That should that should be your reward. Like you know the attack patterns now. So, but but you know I'm not going to complain too much. I still haven't beaten it on the on hero mode more because I got stuck on <laughs> the uh, no I, I I was stuck on the DLC. I was going to do that before mm-hmm. I beat it. And when you have to do the uh, the memory fights when you have like mm-hmm. four arrows to fight them with, I just got I kept running into a wall, so I just quit. The, uh, I stopped doing it. You'll you'll appreciate the halved health on, in hero mode. Um, yeah, I, I imagine so. That. <laughs> I remember I, when I started Hero Mode, I died almost immediately. It was just like, oh, yeah, the yeah, the it was great. Enemy, it was refreshing. I only have a stick. This actually makes sense. I should be dead. Speaking of the map, you know, there's a lot of geodiversity. We have deserts, we have mountains, islands, tundras, forests, um, and all of those come with the same kind of system builds as we talked about in terms of like heat and cold and whatnot, mm-hmm. water. Uh, so do you guys have any memorable parts of the map itself that really stick out to you, like favorite weather regions or just little spots? Um, I know one I like is um, ever wh- whatever the island is where you have to kind of go in as like Naked Snake and everything's <laughs> OSP. Um, oh, you mean Link to the Past Island? Yes. Uh, Evenfall, is that or something Eventide. like that? Eventide Island. Um, I love that, but I also kind of hate it because the first time I played through this game... Um, I kind of got in a safe spot where I was getting onto the island and then the blood moon would rise halfway through the uh. island. <laughs> so, and like, I couldn't really get out of it and I eventually figured it out, but it was, it was maybe the most challenging thing I've done in a video game in the last like 10 years was trying to figure out how to get the hell out of that loop. Um, but you guys, uh, any favorite locations on the map itself? I like Satori mountain a lot. Just like to go there to hang out. I think it's really sweet. It's also, you know, it's, it's got a wonderful tribute to Iwata in it, which I, I appreciate. But I just think it's one of the – it's – it is – I don't know how to describe this because I don't know if it's 100% true. It does feel like a less magical magic kingdom than, than Zelda usually does. I think it's mostly just because there's no – everything's gone mostly. So I'd like to go there to feel like it actually get the the – High let the high Japanese fantasy I'm, stuff I'm looking for shows up there, but yeah, I don't know. I I mean I love the castle is is a great final dungeon. I really like I like all four of the main villages a lot, but I, I really like the area around the Zora because I, I, that's the first place I went. I really liked the little challenge to have you going up that mountain fighting everybody. 
just hanging out. It's just a fun. Yeah, it's it's a great, it's a really, really great map. I can think of it like it's got that perfect where I, I don't have it memorized, but I have like it like you're coming back to an old like a neighborhood you used to hang out in and being like, oh, that's over. Like you have a good idea of what's around the hill in the next corner, but you don't know exactly. And I think that's a great spot for a video game map to be in. I think uh, I'm partial to the Akala region. It's just it's so diverse and it shows some of the kind of like the ugliest, most destroyed, most broken down parts of Hyrule, along with some really hidden old magic parts, along with just some of the most beautiful scenery in the entire map. And it's really, you know, that's where you that's where you build your new village. It's kind of like this is where Hyrule is going to 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 thrive again and make a fresh start. And it's really fitting that you just kind of have to go all around this beautiful little pocket in Akala and wipe out everything that is dangerous and deadly that could ever threaten this village. Like you don't have to. There's no narrative that tells you to do it, but I feel responsible for this village I helped to find. And it's like, I, there are many things around here that are dangerous and will eat people and like needs to take care of them. And it, I, I, I love, I really love going there. It's very dangerous too. Uh, you yeah. know, that's, that's one of those spots where the guardians are like, Oh, they're not just hanging out. Yeah, they're everywhere. Well, there's a lot of stuff. The, the castle, I think, is a great... I think what you said there, Mark, I think that's a great good point because that's, I think, main plot-wise, I don't think there's anything... Maybe visiting Robbie, that might be the only thing you do there. So, like, yeah, that is kind of an open... It, is, it does feel like more like the side area for the game. And, yeah, the, the castle is... Like, there's a lot of lore stuff you can really look into if you want, which I which I really appreciate. I love that in games. It's the, I mean, that's that's the most Dark Souls thing in the game. I feel like there were some comparisons that went around. I don't, I just don't feel like they're ever gonna. <laughs> Nintendo, I think, would would shy away from that comparison as fast as they could. But um, yeah, Akala is great. I love, um, I love how many like weird geological formations there are there specifically. That's like where the map editors just went nuts. It is the most. Before you said that, I was thinking it is the most monolith portion yeah. of the entire map. Yeah, no, I was thinking Akala. I mean, it's definitely uh, kind of a a wooded area, a hilly wooded area because it's definitely got elevation. But then it's got that beach on like the northeast side, and that's where like the guardians really swarm. Every time I need to like harvest guardian parts, I just go down there because um, they're just patrolling the beach. Um, and you're talking about the weird geological formations. I think of the one in like the southeast corner by the little uh, beach village um, that has kind of like the tropical butte or plateau uh, mm, look yeah. to it. Um, that really stands out as kind of like rainforesty, which isn't, you know, something I really associate with Zelda. I'm used to woods and lost woods and all that, but um, kind of a tropical forest is new. And then there's that area just south of like where the Rito village is that's always like under a thunderstorm with like the weird mushroom things, which kind of strike me as something out of like Super Mario 2 almost, um, if it was rendered for the Nintendo Switch. Um, so yeah, they like find a lot of weird stuff to do. So, you know, obviously a lot of stuff is very reminiscent of the real world, mountains, lakes, and all that. Uh, but then they do a lot of kind of weird stuff that immerses you into the world of Hyrule and the weirdness of this world specifically. It's very much what if Monolith got to design Japan, you know? And so you get very Japanese environments and very, very Japanese looking areas. And then also weird floating plateaus with holes in them that 
defy explanation, but look really cool. That's something I'm really looking forward to for the sequel is them just going maximalist with that stuff. Like, cause it is, it, it, one of the funniest things about this game to me looking back is that it, the two big rele- Nintendo releases that year were this. I mean, there's, there's so much in this game, but it is designed very, min- it has very minimalist design just in general. And, you know, it's quiet and kind of pensive. And then that contrasts that with the old, like the most Mario game that's ever. <laughs> been released like it's just super ma- I, I said maximus already but that really like that mario Odyssey is just like what if we thought here's everything we've ever thought of here and here it is in a game like that's a fun I, I feel like they may have done that deliberately at least i don't know i give nintendo a lot more credit for just their general communication as a as a design studio they seem like they know what they're like who's doing what what the point of every game is that's a big thing that's again playing cyberpunk i'm, I'm really getting that feeling where like Nobody no, just feels like a game that doesn't have doesn't have direction. It doesn't have a direction to go. And uh, Nintendo almost never feels like that. I would say. Yeah, yeah. I the thing I I wrote about multiple times. You know, ranking the the top hundred one of them was. It's like, I think how long they would go without a Metroid game, and it's just essentially they had they didn't have a Metroid game to make. They didn't have an idea for it. They didn't feel forced to. Star Fox, you know, same thing. Like they make a Star Fox game when they think they have a good idea for a Star Fox game. Um, they make a Pikmin game when they think they have a good idea for a Pikmin game. You know, there's some that they're going to make once per generation, but they're thinking about that game from the moment they finish the previous one, you know, until they, until they finish the next one. Um, but yeah, they don't, there's not a lot of games Nintendo makes just for the sake of like, we should make one of these. Their fans would, I mean, F-Zero fans to, to their chagrin, I would say. Yeah, I mean, the last F-Zero game was designed by uh, the guy who did Daytona for Sega. That's the only reason it even happened is because he wanted to make an F-Zero game. And it was a partnership with, it was a partnership with Sega and Nintendo to make the arcade game and the at-home game. And everyone involved on the Nintendo side is basically like, yeah, we already did a perfect F zero, and we don't have it. We don't have ideas for a more more perfect F zero, which doesn't excuse not re releasing it in HD with online multiplayer, like in the present. That's the, yeah, that's the flaw. Yeah, but as far as like coming up with a new one, I understand. Like, I still play F zero GX, and I'm like, this is still incredibly hard. I still haven't mastered this. I love this game so much. I've had it for almost twenty years now, and I still I would can't say all the, I would say. Even though I brought it up, the one exception is I feel like with Smash and specifically with Mario Party. That's the only one where they're just like, let's just make a new one of those for. Well, that's, yeah, I mean, they have a they have a studio dedicated to Mario Party, made by the people yeah. who used to make it when Hudson existed. So, like, yeah, that's their job. <laughs> that is the Mario Party but, studio. But that's that's such a that's such a fascinating thing because it's it's such a money maker regardless of quality that I understand yep. that they go, yeah, sure, whatever. It's Mario Party. Like, I mean, has there ever been a, a good Mario Party? Like, oh yeah, are they objectively good games? After like I don't know, I maybe two or three I thought were okay, but there's some they're, they're pretty good. I like them. I, there's no, you know, like I didn't rank a single one of them in this list, but I think there's you know there's a good number of like there's there's a lot of good like B level games. There's never been an A level Mario Party. But that's fine. It's not a series meant yeah. to be. It's not meant to be full of A's. It's supposed to be an, a thing you can put on with your friends and everyone will have a good time. Yes, they'll all have a good, enjoyable time. You won't ruin friendships playing Mario Party. <laughs> Those friends it's weren't a, worth it. It's it's a game of skill, as we all we all accept. We all know. 
Um, I wanted to say really quick, I think what, what, I'm, what we're getting at here is that Nintendo's design ethos is very much form follows function. Like, like it's, I mean, it's how Splatoon became what it, what it became because when they started making the concept, they were like, everything came from that concept, from the ink concept. So everything kind of spread out from there. The music style came, spread out from there. The art style mm-hmm. spread out from there. And that's why it just kind of feels, I haven't even played that much Splatoon, but it, it, I think that's why it feels the first time you play it, it feels like it's existed for 30 years. Yeah. It's Where it's like, yeah, of course, of course this concept exists. And that's really what they're masters of. I think it's so Nintendo's very particular, uh, you know, look at all the acquisitions happening, the big acquisitions happening. Nintendo's not going to buy anybody uh, and no one like major because they're so they are only going to bring in people who already fit their design philosophy. They'll look for people with new ideas and who can expand what Nintendo does, but they're looking for people and uh, teams that understand what Nintendo's doing. Uh, who want to try weird? Th- it's why all those employees who left Square, uh, Square before the uh, before and after the the merger with uh, Unix, um, the ones who formed Skip, that formed Vanpool, that formed Punchline, they, like they love to work with Nintendo because it's a bunch of weirdos who want to make weird, like weird shit. And Nintendo, <laughs> Nintendo loves those people with the weird ideas. Um, My other favorite Zelda game is is the one that's mostly based off of Twin Peaks. So yeah, I'm, I'm it's their best <laughs> yeah, attribute. I feel yeah. like uh, Vanpool made uh, the Tingle game, the Japan only Tingle. Oh, yeah. You know, so like that's the kind of people they're looking for. Um, so they're not gonna they're not gonna buy anyone. But, but you get you got like Monolith Soft. You want to talk about form follows function? They, it, you know, they made the they made all the 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 map design um, for Breath of the Wild because they had. Nintendo already had this huge open, this studio that made huge open world games. So they were like, well, we're not going to reinvent the wheel here. We've already got, we've already got Monolith, you know, let's let them do it. So they used a huge million, multi-million seller developer <laughs> to make the map as a co-developer. Um, but, but also gave them infinite resources. Oh yeah. But you know, they pitched their, because fir- that's what Zelda games get. They pitched Xenoblade to Nintendo. By, have you played the first Xenoblade Chronicles? I have watched my I watched my brother play. So the the giant like robots, the huge robots that are the mm. maps, you know, mm. they they made physical models of those and brought them into Nintendo's office, and that was the entire pitch for the game. They had them standing there like they are at the beginning of the game, <laughs> and they were just like, "This is the game. This is the game world. This is the game." And like everything followed from there. But it was just you know same idea with the ink, where it's like, "This is our starting point." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're going to build everything else out from there. And it's such a wild way to, to pitch a game. But like, I want to get, I want to talk to the people who think like that, you know, and I want to play their games. Yeah. Well, it's, it's why, it's why the, almost every 3d Mario it's, I don't think I'd be, I'd be anyone would, uh, I know this is a metal gear podcast, but I don't think anyone would, would really dispute me if I said that the 3d Mario's, I mean Mario in general, but 3D Mario's in particular are are the best game series ever made. Like just the most important because they're also. I mean Mario Odyssey. How many other studios? There, there is the answer is zero. Would would let you come in and be like the this game in this game our character has a hat. <laughs> That's our game, <laughs> and they're like, yeah, sure, but like, how, look at how much. I mean, you could make. You could probably make a dozen pretty good short little indie platformers just out of like the specific 
like different different captures you can do in that game. Mm-hmm. And that's why I called it a maximalist game because they're like, here's you could, here's this this new game we made where you get to be this little sparrow who can climb up walls with his beak and they have to fight a boss with it and then just throw it out. Like, okay, that game's done. We don't need that game anymore. Yeah. There's there's 15 of those in, in Mario Odyssey. It's incredible. And they do it all the time. You know, it's not yeah. just like Odyssey is like the extreme version of that, but uh, Super Mario 3D World. Yep. They had just entire concepts where they're like, oh, this is just like a side thing you could do here. And then they were like, oh, wait, this could be a whole game. There's other things in that game, though, that could be a whole game. And they just didn't make it. But it's 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 wild that they can just they're like, we're going to think of like six games. And we're going to put them all in here. You play a little bit of each one. That's fine. We could have made Bringing six games. That- but. <laughs> As much as I love the 3D Zelda formula, which is, is an offshoot of Ocarina, which it's an offshoot of like the past, you know, that's how these work. The fact that they could bring that, even just a pinch of that into this game is really what I think makes it what it is. You know, I was talking to you guys before this about our favorite Zeldas besides Breath of the Wild, and my second is actually the original uh, Nintendo or Nintendo of Zelda, uh, Legend <laughs> of Zelda on the original Nintendo. And part of that is because Breath of the or Breath of the Wild is my favorite, but it and the original Zelda are the first times I'm like, here you are, here's a world, just go and do. And obviously the original Zelda does have more of a prescribed path. You can't go, you know, beat Dungeon 2 or Dungeon 4 ahead of Dungeon 1 or anything, but there isn't really little guidance. Um, the world feels massive to you, especially in an 8-bit world at the time. Um, and it's just like, figure it out. That's all it was. And, you know, I was five. So that, you know, it I was really, you know, kind of a mental challenge for me. So um, I think that's what I like a lot about this game. It's just that it just, there's no bounce to it in a way, um, which uh, I kind of want to transition to uh, maybe the second to last big gameplay thing I want to talk about. And Brian got to it a little bit earlier is that this game doesn't really have dungeons in the traditional sense. Um, what they have instead are shrines, like many shrines. I think there's 120 in total, at least in the original game proper. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to do all of them to get the classic Link outfit, if you don't have the amiibo, that is. Um, but they have these uh, 120 shrines, which are little puzzles into themselves. They're either puzzles or battles, um, but they kind of represent what would be like rooms inside dungeons in previous Zelda games. Like you would go into a room and have to move blocks around to open a door or something like that. Um, that's kind of all done away with. You do get four divine beasts, which you know kind of stand in as the dungeons of this game. Um, but I mean, they are dungeons, but they're also just so like weird. <laughs> um, I don't even know how to describe them yeah. because they have like moving infrastructure um, that you have to kind of like rearrange um, so you can navigate to different parts. Um, I mean, it's still a dungeon by what Zelda would constitute a dungeon, um, but it's just a very different approach to one of the staples of the Zelda, you know, series. Yeah, they're very. Um, it's like they crossed the Stone Tower from Majora's Mask with Shadow of the Colossus. And just did it four different mm-hmm. ways, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The Divine Beasts themselves are great. Like, I I feel like they yeah, they are the stand-ins. I think my only real problem is not even, like, the shrine, the content of the shrines are great. Like, the, a lot, I mean, there's a few too many of the, the combat ones, especially somehow I missed, like, eight of those. So, of the last 10, when I was wrapping up, I looked up, like, the last 15 or 16 I didn't have. Because this was like August of that year, I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find these," and I think I had like five in a row that were combat ones, and I was just like, "Okay," just emotionlessly without any difficulty, just batting away these little. It was not fun, but um, I would say my only other real problem with them is that like 
you do miss the only thing you really miss with the dungeons because you really could combine any 10 of those and make like a, a decent zelda dungeon but the theming is the big thing like the thing that makes those dungeons stand out is that like we we talked about Skyward Sword, but I love the Ancient Cistern. I think it's one of the best Zelda dungeons because it has such an interesting theme. The Sandship is another one in that, and that's just that game, probably the worst 3D Zelda. But like, um, yeah, I'm just a big fan. I, like, I, that's the thing I'm hoping is really back for the sequel is themed dungeons with like like persistent concepts, big things like Major. I mean, yeah, Majora's Mask has a bunch that where it's like manipulating. Just the like moving the whole dungeon around, and then that's the good. That's the good thing about the water temple. The bad thing is that it takes you so long to do all that. But yeah, I'm a big fan of that concept. I, that's the only thing I really miss from the old formula, though, is the, the traditional dungeon just design. I feel like thematically it wouldn't have fit in Breath of the Wild, but yeah, in Breath of the Wild too. Yeah, I don't see any reason why they can't return to that because doing the shrine, you know, the shrines served a specific like narrative purpose and also a gameplay purpose. Um, and they worked really well within this specific world, but obviously the world of Breath of the Wild 2 will be a different world. Uh, and the, the second, you know, whenever they do a sequel or game starring the same link as the previous one, shit always gets weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So maybe this will be a little more in reverse where it's like things will be weird, but they'll also be more traditional. See, my other two favorite Zelda games. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I like how you mentioned how important the shrines are narratively, because we're going to talk about story here in a minute. And I think a lot, or at least how I interpret this game, is about kind of rebuilding a world or reestablishing connections that were broken in the face of calamity. And just by going to shrines, unlocking them as fast travel points, you are just connecting the world, making it more navigable. Um, and it just it helps create a sense that you know the whole world is open to you. Uh, whereas when you kind of come out of whatever stasis Link was in to start the game. It feels like so much of the world is cut off uh, or, you know, you can't get there yet. Um, and that just really kind of helps. It, it helps make you feel like you're actually having a material impact on the world as you navigate your way through it. Uh, well, something I love specifically about that, I love that they managed to, um, like, justify fast traveling in universe. I'm a big fan of that because you do the, 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 the slate teleports you. Instead of Link just appearing there like he walked the whole way, which I'm, I'm a big fan of that. Um, yeah, in general, I just think the the way you, the locomotion in, in in general in that game is just so good. Shield surfing, we we love doing it. <laughs> I did it. I did it all the time, especially when I started getting the Guardian ones because the Guardian ones aren't damaged by it. I mean, it's a really really small amount of damage, but it does add up over time. So the last thing uh, I want to talk about, and it's perhaps like the biggest sticking point for a lot of people who did not love Breath of the Wild, or perhaps is like the main criticism they levied against it, is weapon deprecation. And I'll start with my own little rant and then hand it off to my buddies here. But I like the system because it feels of a piece with the game's themes about fragility and broken things. If we don't account and care for them, then they will fall into ruin. Uh, Link's journey is about helping to mend this world, reforge connections that have been broken in the wake of calamity. To accentuate this, it helps to emphasize impermanence, perhaps most of all in tools used for violence. Um, and this is also kind of just my Metal Gear Solid brain. I love it because it puts me back into the mindset I was in Selino Yarsk, where you have to literally think about everything you're going to do, what 
cost it might have to your inventory? Is there a better or alternative way to approach, you know, a specific scenario or puzzle? Um, and that's, you know, I'm the one who will use all my weakest weapons first. Like I will go through all my tree branches and leaf <laughs> paddles, um, unless I'm holding onto it for something just so I can save, you know, my, uh, you can't, use you can't use leaves. Those are too important. Those are too powerful. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, those are one of those things you generally want to keep in your inventory. Cause you never know when you're going to want to need them. <laughs> you're never going to, uh, never going to know when you're near a cliff and you want to <laughs> not blow people off of it. Oh, you can do that. I didn't even know that. Yeah, it's great. Well, you freeze them. You, you freeze them first. You you have your, your freeze thing, and then you blow them off, and then they easily shatter. It's a very easy way to deal with powerful enemies. <laughs> oh, I, I just learned game. something here, right there. especially on Hero Mode. <laughs> oh God, I'm going to kill someone with wind after we get off this podcast. That's great. Um, but yeah, so I mean, it's contentious. But uh, how do you guys feel about weapon deprecation in this game? My only real complaint, I think, it could have been toned. Uh, it could have been a little bit like there there are some weapons that are like you use them you can do like three fights with them it's a little less but i wouldn't have minded a way to repair some weapon like you can repair like the um the ones you get from each town for uh, you know helping them i wouldn't have minded a few more you could do that with i think that would be but yeah i i still just the concept in general i'm a, I'm a big fan of because I just, it really, like I said, it opens you up to different styles of play. Doesn't just make you, again, it, it's the equivalent of, I'm bringing Bioshock up again, but it's equivalent of, of those games all play much better when you play them as hard. I'm not, I'm not a difficulty freak, but when you play those games on the hardest difficulty, you have to set traps and like, they've been set traps and, and like use like combinations of plasmids and stuff to actually make progress instead of just, mindlessly shooting everybody with a gun if i want to do that i'll play something else <laughs> like you shouldn't be playing this kind of game if you're just gonna hack people with swords it's not <laughs> it's not the kind of game it is i don't know yeah i think though i think the whole battle system is better because of having the durability uh i do think it's funny that people reacted like this was the first game to ever have limited resources for weapons as if like no one has ever played a shooter where you run out of am- ammo and have to switch to another gun like that is essentially what the equivalent is except here your your last shot with the weapon is also critical whether you throw it or you swing it. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a big halo guy and, and they're maybe their best choice designing that first game was to limit you to only having two guns. Yeah. So it makes you switch, switch, you know, swap them out for different uses and, and experiment with them. Yeah. Gears of War does a very similar thing and they have their own yeah. like layered systems with, you know, if you do things a certain way, think, you'll get these critical hits. It's, it's such a, it's a more fascinating way of fighting that really, there's so much strategy in it, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, think of where a lot of Zelda strategy was. It was just like avoid fireball swing sword, you know? Yeah. Which I is mean, fine. Like figure out how to figure out how to use the, the, the dungeon item. Yeah. Yeah. That's where the most of their, their brain power went for that. So stuff. this is like, okay, do I throw this sword? Do I run up and, you know, you got to think of other ways to do it, especially if like you come upon a bunch of enemies and you don't have a lot of weapons, it changes yeah. the, the nature of things. Like they're there. Do you avoid them completely? Do you attack them? Uh, do you do like the best you can with the weapons you have, or do you look around and see if there's some other alternative way that you can then fight them instead of just like the sack full of swords you have that look like they belong at Helm's <laughs> Deep in the movie, you know? Um, this is a fine sword. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
it's, no, it's, it's like uh, that's where you go and use the fire arrow and blow up. Uh, what's it called? A campfire or blow up the torch that hangs inside yeah. the little skulls. Or you, or you go around the perimeter and light a big fire so they get trapped inside the circle <laughs> and then you airdrop on them after doing it. Yeah, you roll. I've done a lot of this. You stuff. roll boulders yeah, I, down a hill to kind of wake up a camp, oh, yeah. and then you start hurling bombs. Down, you know, whatever you got to do. But there's so many options. It's so much more interesting than just like. I mean, I even like that the master sword can only be used so much. I love. Yeah. The, I love that the world is so broken that the master sword can't even be at full power. You know, like that's kind of great, and it really does. As Manu said, reflect the world that the the game is happening within. In the same way, like I joked about the Helm's Deep thing, but it's the same thing. That world is falling apart. It used to be beautiful. You know, <laughs> it used to be a proper country, um, <laughs> and it's just not anymore. Now they're making. You know, they got this sword that looks like it got. Is that going to cut anything? I don't think you can cut a steak with that thing. But that's what you've got, and it's what you got to use. And, you know, Link's in the process of rebuilding rebuilding this world that's not even really his anymore. But, like, damn it, that's the task at hand. So bring on the orcs. I was just going to say, it's not even just weapon deprecation, but even the variety of weapons you get are in different states of disrepair. Mm -hmm. Like you get rusty swords and broken shields um, versus later on, you'll get much stronger steel and those steel Hyrulean shields that were given to knights. Um, So it's also just reflected in the weapon diversity in terms of on top of um, the weapon deprecation itself. And you want to talk about the diversity, man, there is little more exciting in video games than like you just killed an enemy and your sword exploded and you have no more weapons, but look, their giant skeleton arm is on the ground now and you're going to, you're going to beat his buddy to death with that arm. And and when his arm falls off after you kill him, you can turn around and hit whatever's still standing with that arm. It's, it's such a, there's such a great desperation in, um, you know, you've never played a Zelda game before where you're like, I ran out of ammo. I have to pick up this guy's gun. And there's not because you don't you don't really have guns in Zelda like that. But like this is the this is the Zelda equivalent is ah this yep. guy has fallen. I will pick up his arm and I will beat his friend to death with that's it. That's the so I, I'm gonna make two points real quick. I think that's what I what, what I'm getting at with talking about immersive sims and the best way to describe them is that they are games that if you take time to learn how the systems work, you can you know what will happen when you you can make very very complicated plans with how to deal with certain situations that you just can't do. You can't do on the fly in other games. Like you can, you can decide, like you can really set up, like I'll do this to this guy, then this guy will go that way and he'll fall into this. And you can really set up these Rube Goldberg machine things. And they almost always work. If you know how the systems work, if you take the time to figure them out and that's so rewarding, it's, it's why they're my favorite kind of game. I would honestly say if there's any real complaint I have with the combat, it's that there's probably not quite enough enemy variation. Like there's not quite, cause that's one of the things, this is less an immersive sim thing than it is the specific type of shooter that I like. It's a, a thing called orthogonal unit differentiation. Right, thank you, Harvey Smith, where, um, you know, so many shooters are like the enemies or the variations of enemy are guy in a brown jacket and guy in a gray jacket. And like that's the thing that Halo does, gears to an extent, but Halo, Half Life, and Doom specifically all do, where like you have very, very different enemies, kind like types of enemies. So you could conceivably make an empty room in any of those three games and put ten of one kind of enemy in it, and then put ten of and then make the same room with ten of a different kind of enemy. It'd be a very different fight. And like 
there is that in, in Breath of the Wild because I love I love how enemies throw each other. I love the salt the saltos enemies, but I do feel like they kind of it just feels like there's only like seventy five percent full of what the enemies they wanted to have maybe because there's still a lot more Zelda one enemies you can pull from and I'm, that's something I'm really hoping for in the sequel also that you can just get weirder more bespoke strange enemies who have like specific ways you beat them that's what i'm really looking forward to this game didn't have any hands falling from ceilings to grab you did it no it didn't it didn't have any weird molester hands no that's okay (laughs) yeah Yeah, not not, not necessary that's one problem i have with ocarina is uh, there's a little too much like it comes off a little little more edgy than i think it was meant to but you know also, also came out in 1998 so it's sort of the Attitude Era time we lived in then, when everything was was cool and tough. <laughs> South Park was the biggest show on television. What an awful time we lived in then. <laughs> and it's only worse now. We did have Stone Cold, at least. We did have Stone Cold. We did have Stone Cold. So we aren't going to do like a full story analysis or recap, but I want to talk about the story all the same. Because one thing I hear often is that Breath of the Wild doesn't have much of a story, in part because it doesn't have fully voice a fully voice acted script like most AAA games do now. In fact, I asked Mark to do this episode when we encountered this take in the Wild one morning not long ago. But I do think Breath of the Wild not only has a good story behind it, but is pretty well crafted, especially especially in such an open-ended experience. And low-key, I'm kind of glad we're going to have this conversation now, because some of the beats uh, we're going to go over now I may come back to when we defend the Phantom Pain and its story, which also takes liberties with traditional linear storytelling. The story here, in the absolute broadest strokes, is Link waking up after a hundred-year slumber to find a broken Hyrule. We learned that a calamity fell 100 years ago. Link, the Prince of Zelda, and four champions had tried to stop Ganon, but they failed and Link was hurt and put into a century-long stasis. Link wakes up to Zelda's voice and begins an adventure where he must free Hyrule Castle of Ganon's grips. Along the way, he can choose to help out the other villages and peoples of Hyrule, all of which can make his main task easier. Anyway, the rest is academic, beating Ganon and saving Zelda. Okay, that out of the way, let's discuss the story of this game. Mainly, does it have one you find compelling? And what are your thoughts about people dismissing it over not having, say, a Metal Gear Solid level style script? So, yeah, I mean, I guess if you need a story and every beat of it really like spelled out for you, and I don't even mean this like in a dismissive fashion, I really, like if that is what you need, then this game will not feel like it has a story. Because... The story is the world and the state of the world that it's in and Link's relationship to the world Mm -hmm. and the fact that it's not his. He's there and everything looks familiar, but it's not his anymore. It's 100 years after his time. He's essentially here because he has a job to do. And the, the game is very sad and lonely because of that. And if you're not feeling those things because you're waiting for the game to 
tell you that Link is sad and lonely, then like, yeah, okay, you're going to. If, if you need a cutscene to explicitly say, like, in parentheses, it's like, Link, sad, lonely. <laughs> like, okay, yeah, sure, you're not going to connect with it. But I don't think you need to dig too deep to see that that is the story. This broken Hyrule, this broken man, trying to put it all back together. And essentially on his own, because the only other person he knows really like really knows is trapped in the castle and everyone else that he might've known is 120 years old at this point and is like, not going to go out in a mission. You know, they might just have some, well, unless, they're, unless they're a fish, yeah. <laughs> unless they're a fish man. <laughs> the, the one bit of physical contact that link has with anyone. So it's Sidon, which is incredible to consider this extremely lonely, lonely man in this lonely, lonely world. And that's that's like the first and really only moment of touch he has with anybody. Uh, um, yeah, he'll touch Sidon, all right. Um, <laughs> no, I yeah, I think you would say that it's it seems pretty surface level, but like look how many people you you can go on any, and I don't say just YouTube, but like people talk about how bad the soundtrack was because it was all chopped up and, and destroyed and broken, and I it's the best thing about the game. It's realizing what. Classic Zelda song is playing in, in certain areas is one of the honestly one of the best delights of the game. I think this game has as much story as you want it to have. And again, people just don't, they are not used to making like finding their own fun and stuff. And so, like, yeah, because there's so much, there's so many places. We mentioned Akala Castle before. You can go, most of the ruins in this game, you can just go. Go there and and find out. Not even find out. Just think of like what happened here. I wonder. Like what is this place? There's so much stuff that like uh, Lan Lan Ranch is there. You know, it's it's supposedly the same one from a current of time, and like it doesn't tell you that really. But it's really. I mean, the, the, what I'm really getting to is this game was not only was it a boon for Zelda YouTube people. It basically created an entire subgenre of like just exploring shit and there's so much there and it's because this is Nintendo Nintendo doesn't just throw things into their games like there's so much stuff that fits with the old games and there's so many little stories you can find it really is like they they really took that team team eco and in from soft style of expository like um environmental storytelling that's really what it is and really just cranked it up like it's it's so good it's such a good there's so much just side stuff to find to really engage with. And then the core story is, 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 is a, still a basic Zelda story. It's not as the plot isn't as, I mean, it's the opposite end of the spectrum from Skyward Sword, which is very convoluted, but um, I really had no complaints with the law. I was almost every time I went to go do something, I would find just like, what is this? What, what, what happened here? And just make up my own shit for it, which I love. Why play games? Yeah, the thing that so you said you know there's as much story as you want there to be. Um, the th- a thing that I make sure to do, I've made sure to do every time I've played, is to buy Link's to buy that house for Link and to furnish it and to make it his because 
this is a world that not only is nothing in this world his, but the world itself is not his. Like he is just, he's got a job to do that a disembodied voice told him he needs to complete. And he's like, I do not remember my name, you know, mysterious voice, but like, okay, I guess I have nothing else going on. Uh, um, well, you know, the, the fun thing about that, that, uh, that house, right? Oh yeah. It's, it is his. It is his. Yeah. yeah. It's his house from a hundred years ago, but you know, even he doesn't know that, but yep. Um, I make sure to buy that house for him because it, it's his. It can be his. It can be a piece of the world. It is a way for him to root himself into this world to make it his again. Yeah. And it just, it, it's like, it's, it's funny. It means a lot to me to do that. And I feel bad. I felt I, I took too long to do it last time. And then I was like beating myself up about it. Um, which I don't know. That might seem silly to someone who again wants like a cutscene to go that used to be Link's house, like hitting someone over the head with it. Um, but I don't know. It just, it Probably felt, princess style. <laughs> it felt, it felt very, I don't know. It feels very important to me. And it's like a, a very significant thing in this world. And it's not the only thing like that in the world either. Uh, the the no. whole, the map is just full of these moments. Uh, Deal Asina in, uh, in her Elden Ring review for Paste, um, I guess it will be last week by the time this publishes. Um, <clears throat> she said that an open world, after all, is only as good as the dark holes that perforate its beautiful surface. The land is only as interesting as its scars. It's like Breath of the Wild is just covered in scars, and they all tell a story of this world and what it used to be, and what it currently is, and what it still can be. You um, you ever go to the Breach of Demise and just be like, "What happened here?" Because that's fun. That was <laughs> that was always a fun place for me to go. To go look yeah, at. I like the bit you said about how um, this uh, score soundtrack is just broken little bits of, um, you know, previous Zelda titles or other Zelda light motifs. And that really fits in well because when civilizations break, like this Hyrule did, you know, one of the things that goes is culture and memory, music, the arts, literature, history. And by breaking the score, um, into just little bits and little like, you know, five note flourishes every couple of minutes. Um, it feeds into that because it's not just buildings and people that were lost, but cultures, you know, memes as Kojima would put it. <laughs> if we were talking about Metal Gear Solid 2, it's like, um, you know, a lot, a lot of this game is literally trying to figure out what happened. You know, what are your memories? What happened to you? What happened to this world? Um, and, you know, ways that we keep that alive in our real world is history and music and stuff like that. Um, it's an oral tradition, uh, probably in the the world of Hyrule and written, of course. But um, I really like how in sync, like the score, the map, the weapon deprecation, the shrines, all of that seems to fit in with, you know, what this game wants to make you feel, which is kind of a little bit of melancholy or isolation um, and the little steps you take to, um, you know, kind of fight against that isolation. And I think putting down your roots and building a home and then helping people build a community of their own, those are all things that um, just feed into that. No game that could, that would have the Terrytown music could possibly be bad. It's, it's one of the most, I mean, for the only other, like, Portal 2 does a great job of like having like interactive music almost. Mm-hmm. And uh, until I played that, until I played, that was the best I'd seen until I played Breath of the Wild. But I want to say real quick, I, one of the other things I like is the little bits of not, because it's, I think people don't, didn't, weren't, I knew some people who weren't really like interested in the idea of a really melancholy Zelda, even though it's a very sad series and has been for a long time. But there's so many, mo- I mean, how many people 
how many people knew about the dragons before the game came out? Like how just majestic they are to see and behold. And it's just like, there's so many little, I love every time I went to one of the, the towns, I wouldn't, I would, even if I just had to go for an errand, I would hang out for a little bit and just take in like, well, it's this place. Like, I love that. It's, it's really only this game does it. I guess Skyrim to an extent, but Skyrim has its own problems. <laughs> Towns have vibes, and that, that there's not really there's cool. not enough versions of it. I really wish that they should be really Skyrim. You know, they'll get they'll long. get the definitive version someday. It'll happen. <laughs> uh, then they. Can I don't rest. know if this really <laughs> fits in with the story or Skyrim, but uh, one thing I was thinking about is for all the quote unquote like side missions or side quests in this game, it isn't just like standard fetch quests or like the same thing that you have to just do over and over again. Like w- maybe one set of side quests and that's like the little kid who wants to see different weapons. Um, but it's not like you talk to him, go somewhere and come back to him. It's just like you hope to acquire the weapon. But every other side quest is pretty much, I wouldn't say unique, you know, because they all share the same mechanics, but it's not just talk to the same person, go somewhere else and return, um, get experience or points. In fact, there is no experience or points or anything yeah. like that or skill trees, which by itself is kind of fascinating for a game like this. They don't preview all your quests with like, here's your possible rewards, which is good. That would really, I mean, you, so, so many of them, the reward is having a new adventure, which is how this this genre should exist yeah every every square inch of this game is huh there's a hill i wonder what's on the other side of it and that has to do with the quest you're doing the just random adventuring that you were doing anything that you might spot off in the distance like that is that is everything i mean a a big flaw with open world games in general specifically any open world game where the um the main plot is like time sensitive like oh i've got to rescue my son in the wasteland here or oh i've got to become the the king of drugs sex mountain here in Los Santos or whatever the fuck like the the real problem with those games or you know Red Dead Redemption 2 oh I've got to not die from tuberculosis but also I'm going to go gamble for 15 hours like the the disconnect between those two things it's basically two different games in almost every open world game you can think of where there's the main plot world and then there's just you having a good time you know, some games like Skyrim, they know, like, they just know people, like, a good chunk of the fan base just isn't going to do that. They're just going to go do the Thieves Guild stuff and hang out, which is great. But I feel like this is the only one that that bakes that inherent, like, you're just going to be distracted by everything that happens. I mean, I guess Yakuza does too, but even Yakuza has its, like, you know, there'll be times when somebody gets kidnapped and Kiryu is like, oh, I'm going to go play Sega games, sorry. Like, it, 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 can, it can break your immersion. And uh, Breath of the Wild really does not do that because it really is everything you do, you can justify as, well, I'm just preparing to fight Ganon. And even even some of the side quests are like, I'm trying to help this. You know, it's it's so simple that it, it fits. It, it never felt like I was just, by the time, as soon as I felt like I was just wasting time and doing stuff to do stuff, I went and go kill Ganon. I think even the mm-hmm. time wasting fits in narratively, though, because, you know, Link wakes up no memories doesn't feel like he belongs doesn't feel like he knows this world anymore but doing things that aren't directly tied to the quest can kind of reinvigorate his his desire for life his desire to see this kingdom yeah you know brought back uh like especially side quests in the towns like four towns people because that's just he's just trying to learn like he's just trying to figure out who like who these people are and what what they need and how he can help because he's link Mm mm-hmm 
Uh, anything else you guys want to say about the story or maybe how it fits into the Zelda timeline if you have opinions on that? Uh, um, it's cool that we don't. It destroys the Zelda timeline. I love it. Well, so yeah, we, don't, we don't know if it destroys it. It, it does. I, I, think, well, I, I think it does. I think at this point, the consensus is that it, it is the end point of all timelines. So it kind of just wipes it out and resets it, well, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, it resets it in the sense that there is now a point in the future where the timelines have converged, but I don't think it's destroyed mm-hmm. because you still leave open this gap where they, you could play the one where they converge, yeah, which is yeah. like a wild thing to, con- like, what if you, what if you're playing it, as three has, different links in a game at some point, you know? It has destroyed the need, because I know that Nintendo was annoyed by that the last three or four of immediately being, a, as soon as they introduced the timeline. Mm-hmm. They got asked about it every game, and I feel like they just didn't. They did not make these games like this will fill in the missing part of the timeline. Mm-hmm. They just made a Zelda game and then kind of figured out where it fit later. And so it's destroyed. Then then they don't need to do that anymore. Well, the the thing that I do like about the timeline, though, like at least the games people were asking about the timeline, it was the the four sword the the triangle four swords kind of spiritual sequel thing which like nobody cared about and it was just okay. Like that was the one people were talking about besides breath of the wild. So there has, <clears throat> at least there haven't been like a lot of games where they're really asking about that. Um, but I think they just in general didn't, didn't want to deal with it anymore. Oh, sure. Sure. Uh, but having this does open them up to put it anywhere essentially without having to like justify it. Th- th- that's what's cool. It's like, okay, so we're 10,000 years on from whatever point in time, essentially. So we've got plenty of space to play around in because a lot of the, the, t- the stuff fitting into the timelines, it's not like they were in chronological release order by any stretch of no. the imagination, you know, like the last game in one of the timelines is the first game. I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah, maybe it's all the two, but yeah, it's the downfall timeline. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it's nice that they have like freedom to do that again. And I still think there's, <clears throat> there's some like interesting merit to the timeline. Cause the way they arrange it is very, it's fascinating. Like it's not necessary, Oh yeah, but I do think it's very fascinating. Um, and it really Should we describe it for people who may not know it, who may not be on this call, may or may not be on this call. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I know the timeline if you're talking about me, yeah. but okay. Um, well, cause so the, the basic, I mean, I think most people who have any interest in that understand that it springs off from a grown out of time, but the three timelines specifically are adult child and downfall. Downfall is basically all the old, the original games, which is the, the, the that timeline splits off from link dying, fighting, Ganon at the end of Ocarina of Time. So there's no hero anymore, and that's the downfall. Adult is when um, he retains his memories from the end of Ocarina of Time and, and lives on to die pointlessly, and then Twilight Princess happens. And then child is he goes back in time, and, and Majora's Mask happens. Which leaves a timeline without a hero, but also no Ganon. Yes. yes. Which is like a fascinating, like, wait a minute. <laughs> Anything could happen. Everyone's you know? just vibing over there. Yeah, it's a, um, it's it's. So I, I do think there are interesting things where you see like, wow, there was no good way to handle. I had that backwards. Sorry, Twilight Princess is, is child. Wind Waker is adult. That's the. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love the way the timeline does enhance uh, Twilight Princess. I think and yes, retroactively no, that, that's the game that Ocarina. Um, I think Ocarina is a stronger game narratively because of Twilight Princess. Um, yeah, because it really. But that's the game I'm specifically thinking of when I said they don't. They don't feel. I feel like they did that. Now everyone expected them to do that for every. Like every game was going to be like, hey, remember Ocarina of Time? Yeah, see, I see. I don't want to do that. Feel like they. They didn't want to do that. Yeah, yeah, I love Ocarina, but I don't. Um, I don't love it enough that every game has to tie back. Twilight Princess was fantastic, and 
better than Ocarina and uh, makes Ocarina Majora, better. I mean, the, the one of the reasons I like Majora's almost more is that it, it has very little to do. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's it. So does I mean, so does uh, Link's Awakening with Link to the Past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so my own little head canon, because you know, trying to make sense of how the world of Breath of the Wild fits in with the others all the time, I don't think it's really worth thinking about. I think Brian's pretty much right; it's kind of like a terminus point. I mean, um, no, this I, I believe I've watched a lot of YouTube videos about it and read a lot about it, but it's they don't have to; they shouldn't have to make the game to fit into that. Is what I'm saying. They should make the game they want to make, and I yeah. feel like they've they deli- I I do feel like because I mean they deliberately put in the Arbiter's grounds and they put in vague references to a flood and all this stuff. So like they knew what they were doing with this game. Yeah, they knew they like, were kind of breaking that reliance on it. I feel like. Uh, I like to think of it as um, Jonathan Hickman's secret wars from about eight to 10 years ago um, where, you know, Marvel has like several different timelines or universes. And in one universe, Miles Morales exists and another universe, Peter Parker exists. And they're like, fuck it. We just need one universe. Let's just take everything from yeah. every universe. <laughs> Let's smash it into this one secret wars event. And everything that comes out after is like, this is just the world. And it's kind of subsumed every possible universe and iteration that came before it to have like the best possible one main timeline going forward. Yeah. It's very much like a comics, like a resetting after a count, like just it, because I think the, at a certain point, like the baggage with the timeline is just a little too much. I do hope they, have a game that converges them though like they don't just hand wave it away because i think it would be an interesting thing to do to essentially play in three different worlds um some people thought that's what age of calamity was going to do and i don't i don't know why they thought that (laughs) yeah i mean it was just a prequel to it was just like before ganon beat our ass like that was the story i mean it is it also people also got mad because it it undid it quote unquote uh, because it's a time travel game they were like, it's so funny to see people be like, a time travel Zelda game, well, what will they think of next? <laughs> <laughs> Those well, people are all 23 years old. <laughs> Speaking of 23-year-old thoughts, now Mark has got into my mind they should do like a Zelda endgame where you basically have to hop through all the stories and, I don't know, collect Triforces. And then at the end, you know, you're fighting Ganon's army and then all the different links step out of portals. Uh, I think there's a way to make that work. All the all the <laughs> Zeldas way. show up in one that, one scene. The Hyrule Warriors three. That's that's, that's what I. <laughs> you can, you can recreate the Zeldas pointing at each other <laughs> meme. Uh. Famous meme. So the last thing I kind of wanted to talk about, or at least initially, was Breath of the Wild's legacy, how it's affected games after, but we kind of already talked about some of that. Uh, But somehow it kind of slipped my mind that there's a sequel coming out. um, And Mark and Brian reminded me that as we started talking about it through this podcast. So uh, let's kind of like look forward to that sequel and what you want. I know, Brian, you already mentioned Dungeons. Is there anything else you guys want? A name. They don't, they don't even, I'm getting madder and madder at every direction. They don't need to do, I don't need them to do a huge breakdown of the game at the direct. I just need like, can you just give us a title? Because it's not called Breath of the Wild 2. Like I will, I will bet all the money I own that it's not going to be called that. I don't know. Didn't they have, didn't they have a logo? Did they? 
I, I hope it's not, man. Like that, that I think they even said the title would be spoilery, so that's why they didn't uh, do it. Okay. That, that's what I remember. Yeah, I mean, it might be Breath of the Wild too, but have a subtitle. So, yeah, yeah, me, that's fine. But it's not going to be just called Breath of the Wild. Like I, I'm yeah. pretty sure about that. <laughs> How many times has Nintendo even done that? Super Mario Galaxy Two is the only one that really comes to mind. And like Mario Brothers, that doesn't count. <laughs> that was that was when every game was like that. There was no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess the title. I mean. The titles always do have a real significant meaning. And mm. since you are returning to a universe here that is also much more well-trod than it was at the time of like Ocarina, um, you know, Majora's Mask is like, a, that's a title that no one's going to, everyone's going to be like, well, what the hell's that? So that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's appropriately vague. You know. So is so The Wind Waker. I mean, it describes the game, but it's also, it doesn't really like spoil anything. Yeah. But it's going to be, it's going to be a Zonai name. I'm calling it. <laughs> It will be fascinating. Um, I mean, I imagine Ganon is gone because he's never in a sequel. Um, but mm-hmm. the fact they haven't revealed a title yet makes makes me wonder. Well, I don't know. Uh, it seems like Ganondorf is in it, so I don't know. Give us a Breath of the Wild with uh, Vati. Let's do that. He's so he's due. I mean, I I play it. He's due. That little asshole. Although I guess he's just a giant eye now. A little troublemaker. <laughs> he's just he's just a giant eyeball <laughs> now. I guess so. He's not really doesn't. Have an asshole, but still. Call yes, it he does. <laughs> that's that's worse, honestly. Link's <laughs> gonna get. Link's gonna make a new one for him, if you know what I mean. That, it's just in the other dimension that he left that part there. Good. I think one of the exciting parts about a potential sequel, or the sequel's coming, but the potential of what's in it is like Brian was kind of lamenting earlier how, you know, this game doesn't have like a traditional dungeons in the way that most Zelda games do, or it doesn't have a hook shot, or there's a bunch of other like maybe Zelda staples that we're used to that they kind of didn't include in this game. And now that they kind of created a kind of a whole new way of going forward, or at least, you know, um, created something new with Breath of the Wild, it might be actually fun to see them kind of bring in some of those like Zelda trappings that they mm-hmm. skipped for this game and see how they work it into, um, you know, a Breath of the Wild-like world. Because the hookshot is like my favorite weapon from video games, but in a world where you can climb everything, um, you know, it maybe doesn't serve the point that it might, you know, the way I think of it in terms of like, Link to the past and just kind of going over gaps. But, you know, these are Nintendo people and designers, and I'm sure they'll think of something, you know, probably insanely clever to do with it or a great way to incorporate it into the existing world that we know of. My favorite video game weapon is, of course, the gravity gun from Half-Life 2. But, <laughs> but I'm a man of discerning taste. And- we need to put a Lancer with a chainsaw bayonet inside of Zelda. And do uh, love a chainsaw bayonet. That's a how great- can you not love a chainsaw bayonet, you know? Like I think I think Gears I haven't played five, but I think Gears did eventually sort of lose that spark of of cool weapons because I feel like they just sort of stopped. But hey, you know, Halo's still using the needler, needler so I'm not gonna accuse anyone <laughs> else of being an original. But you can't uh, get rid of the needler, it's too great of a weapon. So I'm a big fan of the weapons in Bayonetta, so if Link comes out in high heels with pistols attached, I mean it's I think it's time to give Link a gun. I know Mark <laughs> alluded to that earlier, but they gave he does have a motorcycle. Kirby has a gun so. now, so you know. Maybe Could you, I mean, if you bring forward that motorcycle from the DLC, but then add like some kind of shotgun, so he's like <laughs> Arnold in T two. Um, I, I think there's potential there. 
Mm. I think the other big rumor is that Zelda might be a playable character in this. I don't know if that's been confirmed or that was just like a that very might be what the the, the, spo- the spoily title is about. I would I would welcome that. I mean, I think everyone would. <laughs> it would actually kick ass if they pulled a Metal Gear Solid two and you just barely played as Link, and then you become Raiden, <laughs> except Zelda Raiden. Yeah, <laughs> I had a I had you a thought. Li- you become lightning. I had a thought for a game that would be a fun like kind of spin off thing if they wanted to return to the Ocarina universe, and it's. You get to play as uh, Sheik during all the Sheik stuff. Um, I'm surprised that game didn't happen. I feel like if, if yeah. it was an old, slightly newer game, they would have made that like spinoff before. Yeah, because there's so much to do. You've got seven years, and you've got the training and the time before Link, and then you've got all the all the stuff that has to happen that like makes Sheik late for these meetings or allows Sheik to appear from wherever, you know. Um, and you know how it ends, obviously, but that doesn't mean you can't do some like climactic final battle of sheiks before uh ganon you know grabs zelda in the temple of time well you talked about engaging with the timeline you can find some way to possibly play with the three different endings that's been out of ocarina of time or the three different timelines so um you can get real creative if you decide to do something kind of parallel to the ocarina of time story i feel like i'm just huge digression here but i'm I'm kind of disappointed that manu you worked in terminator 2 and not the fugitive you're losing your touch. <laughs> oh man! I mean, if they put a damn jump in the next one, or it's like <laughs> I didn't, you know, I I don't even know how to uh, turn the I don't care line into something Zelda. I didn't related, stasis but... my princess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> oh man! Uh, don't worry. I I have time to think about how to incorporate the fugitive in the Breath of the Wild sequel because I'm sure Putting the people in where no one wants it. <laughs> <laughs> the the movie hey. special. <laughs> Hey, it it showed up in Metal Gear Solid Three, so I'll consider that. And he brought, you, and yet you somehow brought it in for every other Metal Gear. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Um, I mean, the MBS Three thing is a direct. That's a direct reference, so I'm not mad at that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if there's anything else to talk about. I think maybe the thing we've kind of glanced about is just the fact that like we're still going strong with YouTube videos. You mentioned highlight reel earlier. Um, I retweeted at least three videos today of like weird stuff you can do in breath of the wild. Um, it's almost always with the stasis um, and just yeah. like pausing something, hitting it a bunch of times and then just seeing what the hell happens. Um, sometimes it does something cool. Sometimes it just blows back and kills link. And each time it's still just a great video. The cook, I mean, the cuckoos, they're always great. It's, I love how they're implemented. Uh, just so we mention it, because I don't know people may get mad. Yes, the music's great. The sound design is great. The menus are okay. I feel like that's, that's a, it's one small weakness with the game. I don't think they're terrible because they're easier to read, but they're definitely, there's, there's times when they verge a little too much on the Mass Effect 1 territory where it's like, what am I looking at here? I don't, there's too much. Like it should have been more easily, I don't know, the, not easy enough to sort, I guess. Yeah, I think the inventory menu and maybe um, maybe some like quick change or like quick mm-hmm. menus might have really helped, especially when changing your outfits. Um, like again, not like a major detriment to the game, but just like little things that would uh, make it easier. Um, yeah, perhaps. Well, that's a thing. An important thing to remember is this game was designed for the Wii U. Mm-hmm. Yes, and having a second screen, which could always be a map or a menu. That's a very good point. That's why I think I'm I'm so impressed that they managed to get the Wanderlust stuff down because you would assume designing that game that people should be looking at the Wii, the pad all the time. <clears throat> but it's such a visually interesting. There's always just stuff over the horizon. It's really just an immaculately designed game. Yeah, they had a lot of experience doing that. I mean, um, 
Monolith made Xenoblade Chronicles X, which um, was a map so huge that if you walked nonstop from one end to the other, uh, it would still take you half an hour just to walk from one end of it to the other end um, without stopping to do anything, which is ridiculous. And and um, I'm sure that like GTA Five could be that could be like that, but those games are made specifically to drive cars around. Yeah, this was mm-hmm. you. I mean, eventually you get a mech and you can fly and that rules. But um, that's just by the time you don't want to like take the path you've already taken. You do everything on foot for a very long time. Um, so I, I think they have a lot of, and they, they ported it over, you know, to Zelda. Obviously they didn't change them much for the Wii U, but they, they had some experience and probably figured out how to change things so that people wouldn't just be staring uh, at the map. Cause like when I played Wind Waker, you know, sometimes I would do that. I pop the, I pop the map up onto the TV and kind of watch sailing there, yeah. you know, or, uh, or look down if I wanted to do that. Um, I, I haven't played Breath of the Wild on the Wii U, but there are moments where I would be going through the menus and thinking, I'm like, man, I kind of wish I could just do that. Like, I wish I was playing this in the Wii U uh, only for that, essentially. Um, the, the, the photos where you're looking, mm-hmm. you're looking mm-hmm. for the uh, specific spots to, to find Link's memories. That was so obviously designed specifically for the Wii U, but it was like too cool to get rid of and too yeah, important to yeah, get rid of. Yeah. So it just became like, well, this is going to be a little more tedious than we envisioned it, but you're also playing it on like a more powerful system that you can uh, bring on the subway if you want to. So deal with it. Yeah, this actually reminded me of something that has nothing to do with that. I apologize, but um I, re- I loved Red Dead Redemption 2, but I remember playing it and thinking it has a lot of the same kind of systems that Zelda does. Obviously, it's, you know, a little more gritty and detailed as, you know, Rockstars want to do. But what I kept thinking of is how kind of too, like it was difficult to handle in the sense that too many controls were mapped to the same button, but it was so context yeah, it's, dependent. it's tedious. It's really hard to replay that game. Like, you know, like if you're like one pixel closer to your horse, all of a sudden you're not drawing your weapon, but you're putting a lasso into your horse's <laughs> carriage or something like, or you're like dismounting or mounting and stuff like that. Whereas with Zelda, it's like, I never end up doing something I don't want to do. Like the controls are very simple, but they're mm-hmm. generally pretty precise. Um, especially once you learn the combat and the dodging mechanics. Um, I think the game handles like, you know, a treat. It's just like so easy uh, where a lot of other big third or triple a open world games feel like they try to do too much or have kind of too much going on with the controller and the mechanics and never really felt that way with this game. And it's even with the motion stuff. Uh, they learned a lot of lessons. I feel like in between the Wii and the switch with uh, motion controlled Zeldas. Um, and I think the, the, using the DS's 3d, uh, the 3ds's gyroscopic controls for the, um, the remakes of Majora's Mask and Ocarina of Time. I feel like that really helped inform what they were doing here. Uh, you know, putting the gyroscope inside of the, um, like the, the, the pro controller or just the, the, you know, the actual switch itself. Uh, well, the joy cons on the sides of the switch. Um, it, it's so like ease of use. Like you, you know, you pull out a bow and you can fire very accurately and quickly without the movement being, like it feels right. You don't have to make these big sweeping movements. It's very like precise. Like you're moving an analog stick. You're just using your whole hand to do it. Essentially, all of that feels very easy. And like switching between button presses and and uh, using those motion controls 
it's all just very smooth and easy. And I feel like, like you said, you don't do anything accidentally. Um, and it really helps with the switching, but like, okay, I'm going to, uh, you know, Brian had mentioned like, is this coming up with a whole plan of like, I'm going to take care of this with this, this guy with that and this guy that, so, you know, you pull out the bow and you do your quick motion control, like headshot, and then you switch to whatever weapon you wanted to use next to take out the next guy or throw a bomb or whatever. And yeah, it's all just seamless and it <laughs> feels like it shouldn't be in some ways, but it is. I mean, Zelda's never really had, like, the combat's always been, I think there's a lot of good combat in these games, but that the, switching between gadgets has never been the easiest thing in the world. So, yeah, it's it's really it's really fascinating. I'm really interested to see, because I, I feel this game's taken so long at this point, like, there has to be so much new shit. I, I just, it's not going to, I mean, we already kind of know from what we've seen of it, but, like, it's not going to be, just a rehash of that same map. So I'm really, it's going to, it's going to get into that fun. Like I said, like it's one of the things that I love about immersive sim games, specifically Hitman in this case, is that like the, the, you almost have to like play these, the, a game like this so much that you know the map by hand. And then you do the weird immersion stuff <laughs> that you can only try once. And that's like where the real fun of those games, I mean, they're, they're great games, but like that's like the, the highest level challenge. I'm really interested to see what they're going to do for returning players for this game to challenge, like give us some kind of issue really like navigating. I'm really interested to see what that's going to look like. Hookshot, baby hookshot all the time. You get five hookshots who even knows, (laughs) Um, but uh, you guys, uh, any closing thoughts, anything, um, it's the second best game of that entire generation, and it's it's the only thing I have ahead of it is Kentucky Route Zero, which doesn't really count because it's uh, not really of that generation. So yeah, I just have my list up here. It's an incredible game. It's not my favorite Zelda, but it is the best one. It's a good way to describe it. Uh, it's probably my favorite Zelda, um, and I, I'll, I'll take everyone's consensus here that it's the best. Um, yeah, I think only, you know, perhaps a handful of Metal Gear titles and Final Fantasy VI um, are the only games I would ever consider putting above Breath of the Wild as my own personal ranking. Um, I don't know what else there is to say. I mean, we just spent two hours on it, so. I don't know uh, where it would be in my personal ranking, but it, it, some not in the top five, but uh, somewhere in that, you know, 10 out of 10, five star 25 or so games I have. So it's in there. I'm not sure where, but it is in there. Yeah, please don't ask me where it is in my personal ranking. I spent how long preparing and then writing <laughs> that top 101 for just Nintendo games. Please don't do that to me. We'll be here. Yeah. And, we'll be here for the next 18 months. And for our listeners at home, if you go to the show notes wherever you're listening, I will include both Mark's and Brian's write up on Breath of the Wild. Uh, Brian's is back from when it was released in 2017, and Mark's was from last summer, which we discussed in our previous episode we had Mark on.
So that's mission complete for this episode. Before we do our regular sign-off, Mark, thanks again for joining us. Please tell the world where they can find you or subscribe to your newsletter. Uh, my video game newsletter is uh, retroxp.substack.com. Uh, and I write about things besides Breath of the Wild there. Uh, I mean, there's a lot to write about it, but I've been running a little too long to only be writing about that. Uh, actually, I have, a, I have a project that your listeners might be uh, interested in that I'm, I will have started by the time this publishes. So uh, I'm going to do a whole month-long celebration of Hudson Soft, which no longer exists anymore because Konami absorbed it. And then, uh, as fans of Metal Gear will surely um, understand, started completely ignoring all of it and doing nothing with it. Or doing kind of no, half- that doesn't sound like them. <laughs> so it's uh, it's as of March first, it is ten years since Konami fully purchased Hudson and dissolved them into uh, the larger Konami machine. Um, so I'm going to look back at essentially what uh, what we had and what we lost, and what Konami's not doing with it, and some things they're doing that are good. There's there's some positives. It's just not enough to uh, to make me happy. But I'm going to spend. I, I assume those are pachinko machines. <laughs> no, they did the Turbo Graphics Mini, which is like. No, that's right. Yeah, arguably the best of those. Um, Ooh, interesting. So yeah, it's very fascinating. Um, the reasons why there's like fifty something games on it, and they included uh, the Japanese games with the instead of you know having separate ones for separate regions, um, they have all of the games uh, like the same games are on regardless of where you buy it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's mostly going to be a celebration of Hudson with a little bit of complaining about Konami. But again, I feel like if any if any podcast audience will understand my point, it will be this one. But we'll start to boost that on the timeline. So thanks again, Mark. We love Konami. What are you talking about? <laughs> great business. They've made so much money. And speaking of, we'll probably have uh, Mark on once again when we dive into Metal Gear Rising Revengeance, which will be our next main stop on the podcast. Our frequency is podcastsansfrontiers at gmail.com and at podsansfront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support Podcast Sans Frontiers and all my other projects at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb, which, hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering The Lord of the Rings over at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. I'm still Brian. I'm not doing a quote this time. <laughs> my, qu- my quote is the sound of Link falling. Ah! Great noise. <laughs> Hey, listen. Uh, Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember that I did not pull a Zelda quote to finish the podcast (laughs) episode with. So bye. Yeah, I have to, like, stop the recording, huh?